Remember, what, they, what the elites and the Atlantises hate and what they all hate is what they hate about Trump the most is he gave the deplorables a voice, right? And it's upon their shoulders at all rest. It's their tax money. It's their pension funds. It's their sons and daughters. Mm. And so the working class in this country support the entire game, right? But they're the ones that, first off, nobody want, all people want to do is keep their mouth shut, continue to pay your taxes, work hard, put money in your pension fund that they will use to ship jobs overseas. Oh, by the way, and since you're patriotic, send your sons and daughters to foreign battlefields in one of those three places, whether it's in the Ukraine, whether it's in the Hindu Kush, whether it's in the South China Sea, or whether it's at the 38th parallel. Send your sons and daughters there for their life because we're not going to do that. We're not going to send our sons and daughters. We're just going to create the value that this system, thing. that is the beating heart. And that system plays out throughout every uh, th that is what the American empire is built upon, right? And that is what is the beating heart of what the problem here is in this country. And will be taken down brick by brick eventually. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And boy, do we have something special for you today. For episode 50, we uh, pulled all of our strings. Actually, I just shot one text message because our guest is a patriot who um, is always very generous with his time and brought you Stephen K. Bannon. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But as we've been promoting for a couple of weeks now, we are three days out from Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security. This is our foreign policy conference with the American conservative. The neocons are circling the wagons in Washington, D.C. They think that seven years of progress in the foreign policy issue has been erased because of this Ukraine crisis. We're trying to chart the path forward. So make sure that you go to our website. You can find Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security there. Um, and uh, be sure to sign up. Uh, I'm sure there's a few tickets left. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Um, tons of guest speakers and uh, we hope that uh, you'll join us for that. It's in Washington, D.C. here at the Marriott Marquis all day on Thursday, March 31st. So we look forward to seeing you there. Uh, but who do we have for our speaker today? Well, uh, we have Mr. Stephen K. Bannon, who it feels almost silly to read out a bio for. So I'm not going to. Instead, um, I'll say that he is one of the few people on this planet who has not only been exceptionally successful in his life, but he's been successful in basically four different fields of life. Not only uh, does he have the career in politics that he does, but he has been a third standard deviation success in banking, in media, uh, and in the military as well. He is probably one of the most interesting people in American life today. The media think he is literally the devil. Um, and we had a fantastic wide-ranging conversation on, on his theory of the world, what brought him here, um, what he believes, what the future is, and what the signal is instead of the noise. Um, I thought it was pretty incredible. What do you think, Jake? Or, sorry, your Jake. My apologies. When was the last time you had Jake in this chair? Um, yeah, you know, every week we 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 say that we have a really special guest, but like this time it's like an extra extra uh, special guest. Um, you know, one thing that really strikes me sitting across from Steve is he's a guy who knows. You know, you meet a lot of people in Washington D.C. who know a little bit about everything. Well, Steve knows a lot about literally everything under the sun. <laughs> so um, you'll get an education this week on you know 
why everyone under the age of 40 is basically a Russian serf, um, what we needed to do, what we need to do to combat the Chinese Communist Party, um, why everything we're doing uh, in, in the Ukraine right now against Russia is a mistake um, and what feels like a billion other things. I feel like you should get a college degree for just finishing this episode. It's going to be incredible. So uh, as always, you can find us on social media at ammoment.org. Um, that's uh, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, Facebook, everywhere. Um, uh, be sure to sign up on the website at AmericanMoment.org where you can find all of our programming. I believe the Fellowship for American Statecraft application is open for just a few more days. Um, that's our program where we pay uh, young people $3,000 a month to get their first job in Washington, D.C. Um, and in general, you can support us at AmericanMoment.org org slash donate. But more than anything, uh, be sure to rate and review this podcast. Five stars really helps us in the rankings. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll share this episode around quite a bit because um, we almost feel embarrassed bringing Steve Bannon on onto our little rinky dink show because this sort of knowledge uh, should be spread to as many people as possible. So help us make that possible. And we'll go now to Stephen K. Bannon. Steve, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very impressive operation you guys have here. Not quite the war room, a little more cleaned up. Oh well, uh, I don't know. How, I know. I don't know if I can handle an environment like this. It's I've so squared away. I've seen the war room table, and, the- <laughs> and it's all it's all information. And 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 you have the mind that it takes to actually digest all of that at the same time. Um, I wouldn't be able to focus. And so, um, thank you for coming on. And sure. uh, um, you know, I wanted to take this opportunity. You cover the news every single day, and um, I wanted our audience to be able to hear a little bit of the long view on on uh, Steve Bannon. And so I think the best place to start with that is hearing a little bit about your background. I think people know that you've done a lot of things over the course of your life, military, banking, uh, presidential administration, media, and so on. But but walk us back to the early days. How did What's your story and how did you first get interested in politics? Well, I mean, I came from an Irish Catholic family. We talked politics at the table. You know, Kennedy, Kennedy uh, uh, Democrats and uh, we talk politics all the time. My dad was in a was a union worker, and so um, my older brother says he don't want to hear Democrat. He doesn't want to hear Democrats today. He says you're not really a Democrat unless you walked precincts in Virginia for Adley Stevenson the second time. <laughs> so um, no, but I just you know blue collar Irish family went to a military prep school, college, Navy naval officer, and that was really the you know saw the world through the Navy, South China Sea, Seventh Fleet on a destroyer, destroyer officer, surface warfare officer. And um, went back to the Pentagon, actually arrived in the city the uh, day that Reagan took the oath of office. So wow. I went over a special, uh, went to the inauguration, and then the next day went over to my job, which was a special assistant to the chief of naval operations. Then got a master's at Georgetown where I was in the Pentagon in national security study uh, studies. And then um, Harvard Business School, Wall Street, Goldman Sachs in the M&A department. Then I formed my own firm, specialized in intellectual property. And after uh, had done, a, had a good run and uh, decided that I was going to start doing something else, looking for other opportunities after about 15 years of, or 20 or 25 years, I guess, total of being a financier. Uh, started making films, made In the Face of Evil um, about Reagan with Peter Schweitzer's book, uh, Reagan's War. I optioned that and then turned it into a, turned it into a film, which is really kind of about how Reagan took down the Soviet Union, but really was supposed to be the story of how you have to confront a radical ideology like like uh, radical Islam. And uh, this was after 9-11. Got into, went to the convention that year in 2004. The film played, kind of premiered there, started to meet a lot of people, met Andrew. The film won a bunch of awards. I met Andrew Breitbart, 
who was just this completely like mythic figure in Los Angeles, you know, just a, a guy that was really into Hollywood and building something. And then later on, um, you know, lived in China and had a bunch of investments around the world and finally partnered with Andrew to make, I made another film, Generation Zero, which Andrew was in. Funny story, we, we shot at Dave Bossie's. So I was making about the financial collapse um, in 2000, early 2009. And Andrew was my first guy to, to film. I filmed it for three hours and didn't use one second of it in the, in the film <laughs> because Andrew was all about the culture and all yeah. about it. It was, just wasn't, but we'd cut it up later and, and use it for other things. But he was, so I started partnering with him. Then eventually when Andrew passed away, we raised some money for Breitbart. Uh, to really start the site then when Andrew passed away, stepped in full time and uh, eventually uh, with Peter Schweitzer and others very much focused with our uh, not for profit on different things about corruption and crony capitalism and really focused on Hillary Clinton. So I became a specialist in the Clinton mafia, the Clinton regime through Peter's work, Clinton Cash. And I just finished making a film called Clinton Cash uh, that we put up in August of 16. And it was a very much a frontal assault on, on Hillary Clinton, all the corruption. And then I took over the campaign in, in mid-August and then the rest is kind of history. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was pretty well known a little bit in the conservative circles as a filmmaker up until then. And a guy that was, uh, was helping to run Breitbart, but obviously wasn't known. That changed the moment I, uh, I took over the campaign. Then all of a sudden you're, you know, they're, they're after destroy you full, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah. What did you care about? What was it, you know, because you, you, you're not one of these people that politics is the only thing you're good at. You're, um, I think I, I once read a tweet that, that put it up pretty well is that anyone, whether or not they agree with you or not, should be very interested in what you're doing because it takes a very particular kind of person to succeed in four entirely distinct verticals from the military to government to finance to media. Um, so you had other options. Why? What was motivating you, especially in the early 2000s when some of these issues were a little bit muddier to, to get involved in the first place? It's just, look, it's it, we come from a, um, a, a family that, uh, you know, very patriotic. And it just it seemed to me that and I'd been blessed with having so many opportunities, particularly parents who, although we're not financially wealthy, we're, we were, you know, we were very well off for the time. Right, as a middle class family, all really off the wages of one, you know, wage earner. Because my mom, my mom, you know, was a homemaker for five kids who all went to Catholic school and all graduated from college, which was her big thing. So education was always a part. And just I could see that the country was um, headed down the wrong path. And the reason it was headed down the wrong path is that the people that are the backbone of the country, the kind of the working class and the the middle class, particularly the lower middle class, were putting in all the effort, but were being um, really used. And, and, and this became evident after, to me, more and more after 9-11, after um, where all of a sudden they, we were getting into these wars and the wars like didn't really make sense and hadn't been explained. And, and people, you know, harken back to Vietnam, where it was never really presented to the American people. This is exactly what we're there for. This is the objectives. This is what the outcome will be, uh, what we consider victory. And I saw it again on, on a massive scale. And, and, and that concerned me. And I started making films about it and started getting more involved. But really, it was the financial crisis of 2008, where it became quite evident in the lead up to that, that um, there was uh, Wall Street had turned into a casino. And it was a casino really backed by the Federal Reserve and that you had this kind of socialism for the very wealthy where the downside risk was mitigated by the Fed, by these easy money policies 
the the wealthy had complete unlimited upside, and that was all being supported by not just taxpayers, but as importantly by pension funds and the people's savings center. And then when the crash happened, it was devil catch the highmost. And a good example is my dad. My dad, you know, you had the the the, the Catholic Church and the the country, the Catholic Church and the uh, phone company. Right. And, and maybe it was Catholic Church country and the phone company in that order. And um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the Kramer came out a couple of days after the, the 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 crash or the beginning of the crash said, if you need cash, you got to sell all your stocks. And he blew out of most of his, not all of his AT&T at prices that were, you know, later, to, obviously were, were, were very low and nobody gave him a bailout. Yet immediately Goldman Sachs that weekend gets a bailout. A massive bailout. They signed a piece of paper with two sentences and made Goldman Sachs a bank holding company that allowed them to book five billion dollars a year in profits just by signing. But by Hank Paulson, who had, I had worked for at Goldman Sachs, you know, having to be Secretary of Treasury, and making that happen. I said, "This is a totally rigged game." And as I went through it, and really, and that's why I started doing Generation Zero, and some of the readings I had done in history, particularly uh, Strauss and Howe about the fourth turning, I realized that this was getting to be 80 to 100 years after the last one, like the revolution of the Civil War, the Great Depression of World War II, there was something happening in the country. And so that really got my my interest and I got much more involved meeting Andrew, much more involved in first the media side of it and then actually the more the political side of it. So when did you know that Trump speaking about all these issues was the real deal? Like, can you walk us through well, kind tried, of how that- I, we had, I had tried, remember, I made, a fi- I made a Fire from the Heartland or Fire in the Heartland with uh, Michelle Bachman. And I made a movie on uh, Sarah Palin mm-hmm. in, uh, in, uh, that came out in June of 11. That was going to be Sarah Palin's kickoff film for her, for her presidential run. When I came back, I was living in Shanghai at the time uh, at the French concession. But I came back in 08 uh, because a friend of mine was doing a film that was going to premiere. The guys that made Passion of the Christ made a film on, uh, on uh, Michael Moore that they're going to premiere at the 08 and I came back and just hung around the, the convention and saw Sarah Palin speak. And I go, wow, that is refreshing. That's kind of this populism that I could mm-hmm. see that was that would had to be you know, not just uh, not just you could see brewing from from um, from Perot and all that. But every financial crash in history has always had a populist right reaction to it, populist right and populist left. And I knew that that was going to come because you had this horrible financial crash and so many people were wiped out of their, you know, all their their, their home equity, they were wiped out. So this would be uh, inevitable. I saw Palin, then after the crash happened a month after that, I said, hey, this could be the populist voice. People forget that Palin, off of that, uh, that convention speech, on the day that uh, McCain suspended his campaign, Obama and McCain were essentially tied. In fact, they were bad. They were, I think, a point up. The day that Lehman Brothers went into bankruptcy on on September fifteenth, I think it was Gallup had them a point up. So, and that was based upon Palin. She hadn't been torn apart by the media yet, but she was a populist, right? Not not just your t- classic conservative. And so, it was after that that in thinking about twelve. Uh, not that someone could beat Obama. I thought that'd be very tough. I always thought it'd be very tough to beat Obama in the thing. But I figured that you could get a populist message out there. I, I spent a lot of time with Palin, who did, in October of 11 said she wasn't going to do it. And I spent a lot of time with Lou Dobbs, mm-hmm. uh, that Lou Dobbs was somebody that I was very uh, interested in. He's been speaking a lot of Tea Party events before they pulled him back. But he was and he would these audiences were excited. I'd met then a businessman Trump in 2010 with Dave Bossie, 
really, I think I'd interviewed him on one of my radio shows um, at some time, but then I met him in person and uh, just followed him and tracked him. But he was very populist and very uh, economic nationalist from the beginning. So I could see even going to CPAC and these other things, he, he was, had a very different, very different message and was very, um, really not just embrace these ideas. He personified these ideas in a, in a, in a very powerful way and even had, could take it to the next level. And plus was amazing. Was it Shaw says only connect. I've never seen anybody connect with a working class yeah. and middle class audience like that. And that's why early on I said, this guy, this guy I think is going to be the guy. Yeah. How do you think that happened? Like, I mean, you see people talk all the time about how like, oh, Trump's just this like rich billionaire. This is all an act, whatever. But I remember 2015 listening to a lot of this stuff and it really, it really seems authentic. Like he actually knows what he's talking about. Well, go, he actually, you're hundred percent and go back yeah. to 2014 at 20 at CPAC or 2014. Uh, when he first uh, really started kicking the tires, we went up to uh, in May, I think it was May 1st of 2014, Dave Bossy put on a cattle call in uh, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I think it was in Hanover, New Hampshire. And he, he had Rand Paul had just been on the cover of Time magazine as the guy. You had Mike Lee. You had Newt Gingrich show back up. See so if still had the magic. You had a whole group of people. And I just kind of sat in the back in packed house, 500 activists. These are the people you have to convince because these are the guys who are going to lead, be the be the lead uh, workers for you in any campaign. And uh, I sat in the back and I noticed Trump went up there with no script whatsoever and just started, boom, just hitting it from, from his gut. And people were leaning into that. All the rest of the speeches were some variation with Rand Paul being the most libertarian. But all the other speeches were pretty cookie cutter, mm-hmm. standard Republican uh, orthodoxy in the spectrum of Republican orthodoxy. Trump was totally outside that. But people leaned into it. I said, "Wow, this is uh, this this guy's real." In fact, it was interesting. We we had we were doing Breitbart Radio then. It was a Saturday, and, and uh, Jeremy Peters of the New York Times was there. And I said, "Hey, we've got uh, you know I've got Trump's going to come here. We're going to do an interview with Trump. Hey, and if you hang around, I think you get an interview with him." And Jeremy goes, "Steve, the only way I could be fired by the New York Times." Is giving an interview to Donald Trump <laughs> up here when you got all these other guys? They go, what are you talking about? They go, well, this is this is just a circus act. This is just he's just doing this to get a better deal on The Apprentice. And I go, I know he's not. He, he's he's not even, Jerry, just he says, I'll get fired if I do that. But Cassie Hunt, all of the all the at that time, the second or third stringers who would do Saturdays were all up there with the cameras all around. Not one. He didn't get one interview. Mm, wow. Didn't get Breitbart was the was the thing they just didn't take him seriously. But who took him seriously were the people sitting in that audience, and I could tell they were leaning into it. So I think early on, he uh, and obviously he he grasped these and 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 ran with them. But these are very much his ideas. You know, America first, building the wall. I mean, this the, he was he's been very consistent about this from the from the very beginning. So that's what I thought was so powerful. And I just sat there having. One of the things about Breitbart Radio, it, it's unlike, totally unlike War Room. Then it was almost all a caller show. I would have a couple of Breitbart reporters on, a guest every now and again, but a Breitbart reporter talking maybe about a story, and then I would just take, I would take audience, I would take the audience. Mm. Particularly what's interesting about the truck, a lot of truck drivers, because SiriusXM yeah. is a paid service and guys use it. And I could tell right then what the themes of this thing were going to be. People, people understood something was 
was very wrong with the country. In fact, as Pat Cadell had done this big polling initiative called the Smith Project for Mr. Smith Goes Washington. And he was really polling the middle class and working class and coming out with how, for the first time in American history, the working class, the middle class felt America was in decline. And that was kind of shocking numbers. They've never before, you know, America's great, everything like that. People felt that there was some sort of issue of decline, of managed decline uh, by our elites. And that's that's the that's the underlying kind of subtext of, of Trump's uh, the rise of uh, Trump and Trump's populism. Tell us about election night 2016 and then tell us about the next day. Where were you? What did you see? And then what was that transition like? We had a. Um, we had two floors in the Trump Tower. The Until Election Day, I didn't realize that the floor, I thought we had the eighth floor and the 14th floor. I didn't realize until that day we'd been out with the president, uh, then candidate Trump coming back, I think from, uh, ran, I think um, Grand Rapids, Michigan was like, we added a stop after New Hampshire. He had started his campaign in New Hampshire, but we decided to add one more because we realized we were so close in Michigan and Wisconsin. We thought we could pull it off with with more events. We wanted to go to Michigan one more time. We thought we were that close to winning. And we got in at dark. So I get up early in the morning, go see Dave Boss, who was deputy campaign manager. And he said uh, the eighth floor was called the crack den. <laughs> because, because we had no, it was a concrete floor. We never had any yeah. even wall things on it. It was all where the data guys were. And he said, we built that out as the, as the command center. And I go, fine. And uh, we were on the 14th and they were on the 8th. And uh, I said, fine. I said, let's go. And he, would go, he says, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to go to the elevator. Let's go down. Like I always do. <laughs> he goes, no. We had this, we had a, a like a thing that went downstairs and it was plywood around. And I walked by it all the time and never even thought what it was. Mm-hmm. We go down and we're in the crack den. I go, hang on, we're on the 8th floor. He goes, oh, they just take, <laughs> they, just, they, <laughs> they take a bunch out in the middle. So, um we had a we had a Bill Stepien ran it an internal uh, data room, and uh, we were very fo- focused on a number of precincts. We kind of said at the time there were like um, I think thirty five or forty SMSAs, right, or or kind of these these um, uh, entities that we knew we we got the data of where things were going. And Bill Stepien, particularly Florida, early in the evening, but we had it, and we thought that you know pretty early on. Uh, that was going to be there's going to be a good day. The 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 only hiccup we had was that um, the uh, exit polls came out at five o'clock. The first one and uh, and it had us getting blown out everywhere, except in, I think we were tied in Ohio, maybe tied in Iowa and one up in Ohio. But I mean, every it was a 400 electoral vote blowout and all the newsrooms were like that's where they're getting their makeup and they're all yeah. high five and they're breaking <laughs> the champagne. Hillary's having another, she's having another cocktail. And uh, and the second polling uh, was was just as bad. And we called Jared and I called uh, then the candidate Trump. He said, hey, we left it all in the field. One of the things we did do is we did had Don Jr. and others calling the Mark Levin show. We really tried to work. Hey, let's get the vote out. Make sure we're everybody's, you know, working towards this and getting out. And uh, the Detroit Free Press at nine o'clock, which I think had been calling elections since 1860 called it for Hillary Clinton at nine o'clock. And I said, that's not right. (laughs) That's not right. But so we had, we won Florida, won North Carolina. And and Trump tells a story about talking to Obama later. Obama was sitting in the White House. He's calling Democratic headquarters. They go, no, no, no. Don't worry about Florida. North Carolina is the firewall. <laughs> then when North Carolina goes, don't worry about North Carolina. Pennsylvania is a firewall. Then when another one falls, they they quit taking his calls. They quit. Obama said they wouldn't pick his phone call. Up. <laughs> so, um, 
what happened is that remember it had that big gap and then at midnight around midnight the detroit free press came out and said and they turned it to nobody in a, a neutral call and that's why i told i told then the uh, president the, the candidate was sitting there and i said i think we got this we knew about a couple of years we had a deal that we didn't come up with they come up robbie mook in uh, the arrogance of the of the you know jake sullivan robbie mook all these guys they sent an email over to us two weeks before because they didn't think trump would concede and nah. they sent it to kelly in <laughs> and said uh 15 when ap calls it 15 minutes to the minute uh, if if they call it for us, we're gonna walk up on the stage and, you know, give our you know give our our, our victory speech. Uh, but 15 minutes to the minute, if they call it against us, we will call you and wish you you know condole you know we'll we'll concede. So at 2:30 in the morning, we're sitting in the back of the Hilton where I felt pretty good about because I knew how the states there was kind of a hang fire, and uh, AP called it. Two minutes later, Hillary Clinton called Trump. We got it done and we walked out on stage a few minutes later. So complicated stuff. <laughs> so I, got, I went home and got it. By the time it was finished, about four o'clock, I went home and got cleaned up and was back about six o'clock in the uh, morning and, wow. and talking to Jared because knew we had a uh, knew we had a, you know, a big uh, it, we really had to we didn't have a lot of time to focus. And it's legendary about how uh, then President elect Trump did not want to focus on transition. It's not that he didn't think he was going to win. It was that he thought it would, you know, he's he's very superstitious. It would jinx him. He kept saying yeah. Romney spent all his time <laughs> on transition. <laughs> um, but all the stories that uh, that Chrissy tell all complete total lie. Yeah. Uh, everything about that's a lie. But in yeah. uh, our transition head uh, is um, uh, Senator Haggerty is in, is in the Senate now. So he ran the transition for us kind of day to day, the nuts and bolts of it. Did he so, really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Tell us about that. He was not, he was not, he'll let me tell the story. I mean, he was, he was not in Trump Tower that night. (laughs) He, he, he he came, he showed up. Let's say he was not, he was not within a couple of blocks. Yeah. So, interesting. but he, he did a good job and we got the thing done. And I think, uh, I think, uh, you know, we did as good a job as possible putting it together. When did you guys realize that personnel was going to be harder than you realized? Well, here's the thing about the administrative state is that, um, Look, the nullification project, as we now know, started earlier, but the nullification project by the Democrats started immediately, right? That this is all Russia and Trump, you know, didn't win, et cetera. They couldn't prove it by going to the to the states because they knew that we had won on official legal ballots. Um, you got to remember, and this is goes back to the Reagan White House. And look at the story. There's a great book by Pat Buchanan that talks about the Talks Great about betrayal is right there. <laughs> it, it is, okay. It, it is. Uh, yes. 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 Right there. Yeah. Even if you go to the his book on the uh, I think it was the Nixon White House. Yeah. He what run before the same thing. The true conservatives and what they have to they have to face. So uh, personnel's policy. This is one of the reasons we got this group now that's got this trying to get fourth. Remember the four thousand. Essentially, when you win the presidency, you get four thousand billets inside the government that you get to fill to kind of control the apparatus, apparatus of millions and millions of people and obviously a five and a half trillion dollar annual budget. Um, Of those 4,000, I think a thousand are Senate confirmed. So that's a whole nother process, right? And so just standing those up is, uh, is um, particularly at the time with MAGA America First, that's why your organization is so important. We've got to train, not just train elected officials, you've got to train people ready to go into the apparatus immediately with that. We, I remember Mike Flynn, 
because uh, I was working very closely with Mike Flynn, General Flynn on the on the on the uh, national security part of it. I said, "Hey, Mike, well, let's let's just figure out the National Security Council and 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 uh, and in you know what we had to do to get our people in there." I said, "Just come back and give me an organization chart." And he actually he and Jared actually went with the president elect to um, Washington. I think the next day or the day after day after, and President met with Obama. And uh, Mike met with the National Security Advisors, and uh, I think it was Susan Rice and um, the uh, Jared went and met with the Chief of Staff. And Mike came back and said, "Let's just this weekend go over an org chart." And so Mike comes in, he's got these things as big as this table, and it's like stacked like this. And I go, "What's this?" He says, "Well, this, these are the org charts." I go, "No, no, no! I don't want the. <laughs> I just want the National Security. I don't want the government. I, want, <laughs> I don't want the Pentagon. I just want." He says, "No, this is it." I go, "What are you talking about?" I think at the time. I think I got this number correct. It was 390 billets in the National Security Council. 390 billets. Just the NSC, uh, wow. And it's 390. I think there were 90 political appointees. There's some number like 390. It's 90 and 390, close to 400. Mm. When I was at the Pentagon in the early 80s, this is right after Kissinger and right after uh, Brzezinski. The people in the Pentagon thought that NSC was out of control. And running the world out of control. And I think they had 30 billets. <laughs> I, I think with Kissinger, it was 10 people. I think KT McFarland, she's the first, she was the administrative assistant, went over there. I think there were 10. I mean, this thing was so massive. It was unbelievable. The first mm -hmm. thing we were going to do is, is just downsize that. And obviously, that's where many, many of the problems were festering. You had all these what are called detailees. In fact, Rich Higgins, his funeral is going to be this week. He wrote the, the famous memo that we had that really identified all the Obama and Bush details, but particularly Obama that we had to get out of there. And the first one on his list was the whistleblower. They wow. came to be the whistleblower. Um, Vinman was, was, uh, was uh, high on the list, <laughs> but that I said, Mike, this is just, this is not, I mean, president Trump is not going to run things like this. It's going to be, first of all, we're going to go back out to the agencies more, but number two, this is going to be, uh, you know, very different. But even then we had, I don't think we ever had, more than 35 or 40 at the top of political appointees inside there, people that are qualified and could get security clearances. Remember, the security clearances are not a small, not an insignificant thing. So, no, that's why we got to, I mean, I think if you look at President Trump, first off, the apparatus, and they're there permanently. People call it the deep state. I, I call it the administrative state because it's a, and it's a bigger branch of government than the legislature, the courts, or uh, really what's the executive branch it has become this and it's not just a permanent bureaucracy it is the government of the united states and you can see whether it's the ukraine situation whether it's fauci you see it every day the administrative state has its own way it's going to roll and it's not going to take any input it's going to do what it's going to do and that's why it's got to be taken apart and you see now that in the national security sphere and the intelligence the justice department it's literally out of control. That's what you call it the swamp, which I think is too cute a term because really the, the the problem in the city is you've got the administrative state that's always there. Then you've got the lobbyists and the corporations is the reason Wall Street and the corporatocracy have such a grip on this city. And it's very, very tough. That's why your organization and getting people ready to go in there in another administration is going to be vital because that's you're going to have to go in as a warrior every day. And I think when you hear Matt Gates and people talk about when we take the House this year, Every committee is going to be an oversight committee. That really is to have an oversight hearing every day. On every committee is going to get to this. Only way we're going to get change, real change in this country, is, is to do that. So, what are the some of the biggest ways that a lot of these people in the administrative state 
railroaded the president, railroaded the administration while while you were there and and stopped him from fighting for these policies that help the American people. Well, you can go back and look. If you go back and look, uh, read Best and the Bright, you read all these books, the, the just a president saying he's going to do something doesn't mean the action is going to take place, even if he signs an executive order. But it's across the board. I mean, look at the the one thing I, I thought was imperative. And Josh Rogan picks this up very well in this book. If you ever get a chance to read it called Chaos Under Heaven, mm-hmm. uh, the, the she versus Trump in the in the Trump's first term. He highlights and this is a great example because that was let's take that is a major, major problem we have. Right. Mm-hmm. You sit there and he, he, he says, hey, you have hardliners like Pompeo and Pottinger. You have realists like uh, Mattis and uh, and McMasters. You then have the accommodations like Gary Cohen and, and Mnuchin and the Wall Street crowd. And then you have a different group, the Superhawks. And Superhawks are different. The other three are a spectrum of how to engage with China, everywhere from being super hard line to being realist to being accommodationist. And then you have a group over here, the Superhawks, which Bannon and, uh, and uh, Peter Navarre and Stephen Miller and a few others they don't believe that the Chinese Communist Party is a legitimate government and they think it's a criminal organization and they want to take it down and everything they're doing. Just that process of trying to confront the Chinese Communist Party and to try to go through everything they've done to this country, including all the jobs being shipped off, who's accountable for it, how do you actually bring things back to America? How do you bring the manufacturing base back? Completely fought every step of the way, fought by Treasury, fought by Commerce, fought by every department. And even where you have people that are inclined to say, yes, we have to do this for the president. It, it's, it's, it's fought tooth and nail. Let's go to the border. We have, we have, we, we've been having a major invasion on our border pre-Trump and post-Trump. Post-Trump's obviously worse. In that time, just to build a border wall, the Department of Homeland Security, you've, you're fought tooth and nail on every aspect of it. The other thing you have to remember is that in fighting it, the apparatus has a symbiotic relationship with the media. So as soon as you send a memo, as soon as you have a meeting, as soon as you do anything, that will be absolutely leaked to the press. One mm-hmm. of the things I wanted to do after we won is have on the very first day in the very first act we would do once we came, my idea was not to have all these uh, celebrations, but just have the one, um, you know, have the inauguration, not have that big lunch on the Capitol for all the swells, but have President march down like he did to the White House um, and and go right to work. The first thing he would do would be meet a group right there and he would move the uh, move the uh, uh, move the embassy to Jerusalem, which I said would be historic. We'll do it right there. Campaign promise, commit it, do it right there. Then go back up to Capitol Hill, have a joint session of Congress that that evening, you know, like five o'clock and lay out exactly what you're going to do in the first hundred days. Here's what I'm doing. And I've got these executive orders right here, I'm pounding it. But here's what I want you guys to do on, on Obamacare, on my tax plan, and on an infrastructure bill and hammer it that way. And um, and just a small thing. And even bringing up in a, a very tight internal group that we had uh, working on the transition at the highest levels with Jared, myself, a couple others. All of a sudden, I saw, saw in my box one day an internal memo from, I, I don't know if it was the CIA, State Department saying how the Arab Street would explode. If we decided to move uh, the uh, the embassy to Jerusalem, the Arab Street would explode. They would be taking over embassies and all nonsense. Mm-hmm. But it was sitting there to be leaked to the New York Times and Washington Post and to have that right on the front page. That's the way the system works. Mm-hmm. They don't agree with you. And you saw this in the National Security Council early on. Think about it. We have uh, uh, th- those calls he does from the Oval Office 
We have a call with uh, Mexico. We have a call with Australia. The Australia is about a deal that had been cut that, quite frankly, nobody knew the details of what President Obama had done on this deal. Is President Trump saying we're not going to be doing this in the future? In fact, I'm not that happy this is going to happen. Uh, they are they're leaked that day. First time ever. Presidential phone calls were leaked in the entire transcript the next day. I think it was in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Totally leaked. Mm -hmm. so you don't get more highly classified than those. Well, you do. But let's say this: the very highest level of classification is leaders to each other on the communications that uh, so they can speak bluntly. And President Trump was speaking bluntly in both these conversations, mm -hmm. both to the I think it was the Mexican president, definitely to Australia. They're leaked in their entirety. That's never happened in the history. That was the deep state or the administrative state sending a shot across our bow saying nothing you guys do is going to be really classified. Nothing you're going to do is going to be able to do. do. We're going to put everything out there and leak everything. So that it was siege warfare from the beginning. I think of the whole, all the phoniness of the, of uh, now we know the Russia, whole Russia thing, the Comey situation. It was, it, it, Mueller went through this huge investigation. It turned out to all to be nonsense, but that their nullification project project to nullify uh, the pr Trump presidency was from the very beginning. For, for the very first couple hours, he, he started and it was relentless. And why? Why is it? Because they just don't fear the man and they fear Donald Trump because he's a guy that gets things done. And he's a charismatic leader that people naturally gravitate to. More importantly, they fear what the policies are. They fear what the outcome is. If you really think of inclusive nationalism and participatory populism, it is the last thing. This, this city is an imperial city. It runs an empire. That empire is based upon this thing that they fetishize called the post-war international liberal rules-based order, which is this way that they've kind of controlled the apparatus for their own benefit. They've accrued, they've with their partners in, 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 in Europe and other places, they've accreted all the value to themselves, right? They control every major organ of our institutions. They control Wall Street, the city of London. Most importantly, they control the central banks. And the central banks play right into the house of easy money to... to to increase asset values, why uh, the work by Americans are uh, every day haven't had your average wages for average working person in this country has not increased since 1972, except for a brief moment under President Trump in the years of 18 and 19. And let me be very specific here. We just passed in the city the other day in the dead of night, right, with 68 total votes and I think 18 or 20 Republican votes, a $1.3 trillion uh, deficit, $1.3 trillion discretionary spending, which will all be deficit financed. We have no ability to pay for it. We can't raise taxes. We can't sell the bonds. We're going to have to totally deficit finance that in the, in the middle of the night. At the same time, all because we had to pass this $14 billion of a, of a $5.2 trillion, because you add the three and a half trillion of transfer payments, right? Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, add the discretionary part, which is the annual budget, because mm -hmm. they never want to talk about it anymore. It's always just 1.2 trillion. I said, no, no, no. It's 5 point trillion, because you got to take the transfer payments. It just so happens all revenue sources happen to equal roughly the 3.5. So it's a wash. Mm -hmm. But that permanent, and it's structural now, permanent trillion dollar, trillion and a half dollars is every year adding to the national debt. At the same moment that happens, CNBC comes out with a CNBC comes out with an analysis. Sixty-four percent of the American people live paycheck to paycheck. Eighty percent can go three weeks or four. We can go one month without paycheck, and then you're done. I think ninety percent can go ninety days. Mm -hmm. So there's no and almost I think it's eighty or ninety percent of, of net worth 
of even middle American families, middle class families, is all tied into the equity in their house, which we know from the crash of 2008 can be ephemeral, right? It's not hard cash money in the bank. When you say cash money, the same cash that they're devaluing constantly by continuing to print money. So the, the, the fix is in and they fear as much as they fear Trump and they, they fear him and hate him and they hate him because he gave voice to the voiceless and he put the, uh, he put the silent majority in the room, not in the city, as you know, not in the room, not in the deal. Trump puts you in the room with the best, best advocate. But I don't want people to miss the point. If Trump went away tomorrow and because they think by him going away, all the policies fall apart, all the all the because the charismatic leader is gone. It all falls apart in pushing these 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 uh, these uh, ideas forward. It's just as it's just as much a fear. Right. They've they've taken out the charismatic leader of which they're obsessed by doing any way they can do, which now they realize they're going to have to try to use the courts because they're not going to be able to beat him at the battle. He won the second time. He's going to win the third time. And this is what's put the fear in him. But it's the policies underlining that, that they fear the most. And look, he had to compromise. He was there. He had tremendous pressure from Wall Street. There are many things he wanted to do in China. He wasn't there because the corporate donor structure of the Republican Party in Wall Street. There's other things he wanted to do on, on, on our national security and defense. Let's go back to that. The post-war international liberal rules-based order. What is that? When we talk about it, then we talk about it. It, it. The simplest way to think about it is to think of uh, the globe and particularly think of the Eurasian landmass, this massive, uh, it, it, you know, uh, I think three quarters of the Earth's surface that's not ocean is included in this landmass. If you look at it from the thing, if, if you look at the uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe as we're engaged today, you look at the Persian Gulf, right? The Gulf Emirates around there including Israel, but down there. If you look at then the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea, right, in Taiwan, and then you look up the Northwest Pacific, Japan and, and Korea. Those are the four areas we have. It's a combination in each of those areas of commercial relationships, right? Commercial relationships, trade, commercial relationships, um, uh, trade deals, trade deals, capital markets, you know, we buy and sell into the capital markets all over the world, and an American security guarantee. An American security guarantee secured by the taxpayers of this nation. That's why our defense bills are trillion dollars and, and our deadbeat partners and their deadbeats in Europe. Good people, but their governments are deadbeats. The, why NATO doesn't doesn't even come close to pulling its weight. So whether it's NATO in Western Europe or the Gulf Emirates, which nobody pulls their weight there except for UAE and Israel. Right. But we still give both of those guys tons of money, but they at least they they punch above their weights. If you look in the littoral nations who are all with us and good, but right now they're not pulling their weight. They want to pull more, but they're not pulling their weight. And you look up Japan, not pulling their weight. Australia, India, they're all trying to because they understand the threat. That is the international rules-based order. And my point, if that is so great, because Jim Madison, that the international post-war rules-based order is the greatest gift of the greatest generation. And I said, if that's the case, how did you, if that system is the system that's in place, and it's supposed to be all, it's a fetish now. If this is so wonderful, and we're going to go to war in Ukraine to support that, because that's what this war is about, right? The sovereignty and territorial integrity and uh, and self-determination Ukraine is all because they want to, you know, Fiona Hill, they've got to support this order. How did that order allow a nation like a, a transnational criminal organization like the Chinese Communist Party to go from a backwards undeveloped nation to an economic superpower 
that not just competes with us, could be arguably more powerful than we are and built a military at the same time. If that order is so spectacular, how did we allow it actually, how did it exacerbate? It exacerbated the, the growth and support and quite frankly, wealth of the greatest rival this nation's ever had, an existential, the first existential threat that actually compete with you everywhere and actually take this country down. The Chinese Communist Party have done that during the time we had this rules-based order. It's not a rules-based order. It's a rules-based order for the MOOCs who underwrite it. Remember, what they, what the elites in the Atlantises hate and what they all hate is what they hate about Trump the most is he gave the deplorables a voice. Right. And it's upon their shoulders at all rest. It's their tax money. It's their pension funds. It's their sons and daughters. Mm. And so the working class in this country support the entire game. Right. But they're the ones that, first off, nobody, all people want to do is keep their mouth shut, continue to pay your taxes, work hard, put money in your pension fund that they will use to ship jobs overseas. Oh, by the way, and since you're patriotic, send your sons and daughters to foreign battlefields in one of those three places, whether it's in the Ukraine whether it's in the Hindu Kush, whether it's in the South China Sea, or whether it's at the 38th parallel. Send your sons and daughters there for their life because we're not going to do that. We're not going to send our sons and daughters. We're just going to create the value that the system, that is the beating heart. And that system plays out throughout every, uh, that is what the American empire is built upon, right? And that is what is the beating heart of what the problem here is in this country. And we'll be taken down brick by brick eventually. I totally agree with you that basically the American ruling class have expropriated wealth out of this country and, and, and allowed China to grow itself over the course of the last 30 to 40 years. What I'm very interested in is what kind of response is merited now, because um, the thing that concerns me is when you use a language like existential threat vis-a-vis -vis China, the neocons in this town start licking their chops. Ooh, mm -hmm. existential threats, aircraft carriers, battle tanks, uh, ships, armies. Um, so glad you brought that They get to enrich themselves once more. Why Why is this <clears throat> pivot to China not a way for just neocons to reestablish Because themselves? what we have to do, and you're seeing this now in this really infantile, and I want to say infantile and dangerous to all your viewers, uh, this uh, letter. First of all, the bill that was in the middle of the night to have a 2,700-page bill that has not been read by anybody. We have no earthy idea what's in that bill. We're just finding out now. Because of a $14 billion had to be done because of $14 billion that had to go to Ukraine and had to go there that minute. Had to do it. More infantile and dangerous is what the Republicans did uh, the following day, which is to put out a um, a letter to Biden saying we have to send the MiG aircraft. We have to send all the support of the MiG aircraft. We have to show that we're going to be in a military alliance. After we've gone to an active economic war to take down uh, the Russian central bank, the Russian ruble, and destroy the Russian people economically for regime change. What we have, and this is why this book is so important if your viewers haven't uh, gotten it, uh, Unrestricted Warfare, is the Chinese plan that was published in the late 90s about what we call today hybrid warfare or what we call unrestricted warfare, which is war in the 21st century is much more sophisticated than what people watching Fox all day long. It's not just guns and tanks and things, as, as lethal as those can be. You have information warfare, which we fight every day. And you can see this even in the Tony Fauci of it all. You have information warfare, you have cyber warfare, you have economic warfare, and then you have kinetic warfare, which is really the guns going up. As being an existential threat, unlike the neocons, we're, we don't want to go and put American values everywhere. Remember, they want to spread 
uh, America, and not just American values. I would say EU values, mm-hmm. right? N- not not hard work or or grit and determination or making it on your own. They've got a whole social justice warrior uh, a calendar of events, right? That they, a calendar of things they want to put in there. Yeah. They're not trying well, to take the first and second amendment anywhere. Exa- that's my point. So yeah. ours is very simple. We want it, and I've advocated for a long time. What we're doing to Russia, those tools we're using on Russia which are brutal. And this is why Biden and even Mark Levin, who says he loves the Constitution, well, where's the War Powers Act? And are much less coming to Congress. And, you know, Zelensky's going to address it on Wednesday. How about followed by Biden making an address to go to Congress and ask for ask for war powers? We are at economic war with Russia. We're taking down their central bank. We swept all their reserves. They had $800 billion of reserves, two-thirds of that in dollars and in euros. We just swept it. We just took it, right? We just took it. We, we're trying to destroy their central bank. We're trying to crush the ruble because we want regime change from the people. That's offensive economic warfare. We should be doing that to the Chinese Communist Party right now to assist Lao Beijing in the overthrow of the Chinese Communist Party. And the reason is, is that that's the head of the snake until we deal with that problem. And that problem is so infested the West. It's so infested Wall Street. Venture capital, private equity, uh, you know, Larry Fink, Steve Schwartzman, all these guys, Ray Dalio, they're making more money out of China than they make here. They're taking your pension dollars over there until we confront the Chinese Communist Party and do it and do it in a way that's like Reagan did it. Reagan took down the Soviet Union because he realized it was an existential threat and he was not a neocon. He was an old school conservative conservative. That's what we are. It's peace through strength, but it's using the tools. If you're going to use them in something that's not our fight. And quite frankly, the eastern border, the, 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 the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine on its eastern border in these Russian-speaking provinces is just not our fight, right? The self-determination of those people should be left to those people and some sort of international consortium should come together and let them negotiate it. But that's not our fight. Our fight's on the southern border of the United States. But we're not, we are not isolationist. We realize in America first, you do have certain enemies. Now, there are certain members of the American First community who I love who think, oh, Bannon, you go a little neocon when you start talking about China, right? That, that we just got to figure out, you know, what, what we're doing here and just make it so. If the world was that simple, I would agree. We should not be going around the world looking for monsters to slay. The founders told us that because you can see monsters everywhere. And if I thought we could coexist with the Chinese Communist Party, I'd be the first guy to say, let's just worry about America first. We'll have alliances. We'll have all this. And just get, but you can't. They're, they are out to. They're out to be a hegemon. They're going. They want to be a hegemon on the Eurasian landmass first, and they're doing a good job of it. Look what's happened since Trump's left. They've partnered with Russia, which I advocated from day one. As corrupt as Putin is, and the KGB guys around him, Russia's still in a demographic death spiral. It doesn't make anything the world wants except oil and gas for 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 Western Europe, right? But somehow we have to do a reverse of what Nixon and Kissinger did in China. We have to partner with them somehow, because if you have the CCP and Pakistan, the big three, if you have CCP, Persia, the mullahs in Iran and Russia right there, they're going to control the Eurasian landmass. You throw Turkey in, you throw Pakistan in, you throw mini me in North Korea. in, you've got something that will change not just the course of history. It will make America's the life in America very, very different. And what I mean by that, very, very harsh. If you think you're we think we live in a semi-feudal society today, which we do, because anybody under 40 is nothing more than a Russian serf. You, you're <laughs> so be- true. You're better, no, you're better, you're better clothed. You have more information. You have more gadgets. You, you have more ability to communicate and hang out. But you don't really own anything, and you're not going to own anything. At, at zero interest rates, right, which crush 
negative interest rate and zero interest rates help the wealthy and crush the poor and crush the working class. You have no ability to accumulate capital even to make a down payment on a home mm-hmm. of which even then the home, your home equity is going to be ephemeral. So you've been totally dialed out. You know, I think populism ought to take a, a new, uh, a, a, a new, um, uh, get a new slogan. Mm. And that it, it, it's a piece of the action. But when I say piece of the action, the elites on Wall Street have what's called carried interest. And we're always talking about taxing carried interest because carried interest is the way you can basically avoid current income and get taxed for long-term capital gains by just basically taking millions in current income. What we need in this country is a carried interest of the Amer- American people have to have a carried interest in America. Mm. Once we set it up, the and it's not socialism, it's the opposite of socialism. As soon as we get a structure that the working class and middle class in this country actually have a direct ownership of parts of this amazing economy, then that's when we'll start to turn things around where people feel they got skin in the game. Right now, you know, Rick Scott, God bless him, he comes to the thing, 47% of the people don't pay taxes. We can't get ready to pay taxes. Like, hey, why don't we get it that 90% of the people that are not participating in capitalism right now participate in capitalism? We have a problem. We have a quote unquote, supposedly capitalist society with no capitalist. We got oligarchs, and we have serfs, right? And no, that's no, we where, call them billionaires in the United States. <laughs> I call them oligarchs. So they're, but the tech guys are oligarchs. They have the ability of life. And look, when you can take a commander in chief like Donald Trump, whether you love him or hate him, and you can basically cut him off from communication to his thing like Twitter did and Facebook did, when, when any one individual in a company can do that and, 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 and have that kind of power, that's when, that's when they become oligarchs, not just with their wealth, but also with their power. Well, so let's talk about that. We just covered what feels like everything under the sun uh, from the Russia and China thing to, to, to uh, big tech to all of us young people uh, basically being serfs at this point. Um, how did conservatives miss the boat on all of this stuff? I mean, are they I think conservative, I think, no, I think conservatives, I hate to say this and I know a lot of people are going to get rubbed the wrong way. Conservatism has been just liberalism with, uh, with inertia. Mm-hmm. In other words, it always gets to the same place of where the liberals are eventually, right? Now you've got these, these aren't liberals. These are, prog- these are cultural Marxists that we're up against. Now it's the providential thing of the big steal in 2020. All their face cards got flipped over. There's no middle ground, right? There's us and there's them. And both sides hate each other, right? And one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. We're going to do it at the ballot box because we have an overwhelming two thirds of the nation support our policies. You've seen that in the Rio Grande Valley. Mm-hmm. You're seeing across as more black candidates start to sign up and running as populist, right? In the Rio Grande Valley, the Hispanic vote could be 50%. These are tectonic plate shifts that allow us in November. I keep telling people, this is not an election. Don't tell me it's the most important election. I don't want to hear it. What I do know, what I do know is that on November 8th, if we get it all together and continue to work in unison as we're working, we can destroy the Democratic Party as a national political institution. It can shatter into two things. The progressive, you know, the, the progressives run by the squad party over here, which is kind of a green party in Germany. And then this kind of neoliberal neocon with Liz Cheney here and, and Hillary Clinton here. And they all kind of the, the, the never Trump crowd on MSNBC and in the Republican Party, Karl Rove, they all find a place in that. And then you have a... I don't want to say a right wing, let's say a center right populist nationalist conservative party, which is the Republican Party. We have that if we focus and we know whether it's school moms taking over school boards, people doing the precinct strategy and of mm-hmm. precinct, people becoming election officials or poll workers and watchers or taking over election boards or today now taking over medical boards. That 
that momentum is right there. It's for us to do it and we can shatter the the we can shatter the Democratic Party. I think conservatives, I keep saying, since 1968 when Nixon won, if you look at from presidential to, to the Senate, the House, particularly state legislatures all the way down, the Republicans or conservatives won more elections than they lost. They won more elections than they lost. And in the process, we lost the country. Mm. So please tell me how that happened. Please tell me. I wanted to explain that to me. How did we win all these elections? How did people do all this work? How did they raise all this money? How did they fight all these fights? And at the end of the day, we got what Joe Biden offered up right after his administration took took office. It's stolen as it is. Look at the look at the left wing. Look at what they try to do and the radicals they have one level below the cabinet positions. Look at these radicals they put in. Look at the radicals they want to put in the judiciary. Look what they try to do to the, the military. Look what they try to do to education. Look at the agenda they try to force the American people that, thank God, has been rejected, particularly by people who are not naturally inclined to support us. Suburban moms, right? Because the radicalness of this thing. So I ask the question, if you're a conservative, answer me this first. You won more elections, you raised more money, people put their shoulder to the wheel, and you lost the country. Okay? Tell me how that happened. And if by divine providence, and yes, Donald Trump is a providential figure, warts and all, he's very imperfect. He's the first to admit that when you get to know him. He, he doesn't have this narcissistic ego at all when you really get to know him. He didn't have to do this. He did this for his love of country. He could have done, bought all the golf courses and had the British Open there and had a lovely wife and had, he, that's why I knew he was real. He put his shoulder to the wheel because he understood America was in decline and he felt he was a guy that could step in the breach and turn it around. I just ask you, and nobody running that year would have come close, come close to beating Hillary Clinton. One of the reasons I was so for Trump early on, it caught so much grief from the conservatives who all turned out, I don't want to name names, but everybody knows who they are and they know who they are, who fought me every step of the way, called me every name of the book, fought me every step of the way because of my support for Trump and these policies. Not one of them and not one candidate they had could have come close to beating Hillary Clinton. So think of what the world would have been like with Hillary Clinton as president of the United States on January a 20th of 2017, where would the nation be today? If you think what what Biden's done, it would have been, it would have been turbocharged because you had the entire Clinton mafia and plus all the, remember, they felt Merrick Garland was too, she was not that gung-ho Merrick Garland, that he was too moderate, right, to really be, it was not guaranteed that she was going to nominate him, Larry Tribe or some other super lefty. Where would the nation have been? Donald Trump stopped that. He stood athort history and stopped it single-handedly. He did. He stopped it single-handedly. But you can see the po the policies, the people that would never think of getting Hispanics involved here in the level there. Things that would never get the Royce Whites of the world, hardcore populist uh, blacks. That's now all welcome, right? These suburban moms, because right now with this participatory populism, people are engaged. We're going to take this country back village by village. We're going to do it every school board, every election official board, every precinct committee strategy, every town council. That's how we're going to take this country back. We know we can outwork them. And not just that, people are coming to this cause and coming to this movement because they believe we're, we're still a very conservative, culturally very conservative. It's just people have been afraid to come forward because they thought they were going to be other. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to throw out of their clubs, all mm -hmm. that, which they tried to do. That's why they turned their face cards over. And that's why this is our moment. This is our moment. This election this year is our moment to bring all that together. I don't want to call it a big 10. I'll call it a big movement, but it's, it's right there. I can see it every day. Just like I could tell 
Trump and what the policies were by Breitbart Radio by taking the calls from the callers, right? Back then, I knew it. I could feel the policies, what was working. Now I can see it at all these local levels, whether it's Moms for Liberty, whether it's, you know, Dan Schultz's precinct strategy. I see what's happening around the country of people volunteering, putting putting the, the channel changer down and actually getting it, not having to write a check. Take your checkbook away. You don't need to be a donor. You need to put your being and your person and your will in back of this. And that's what's driving this. And that's what could lead us to a historic win and to shatter up and down the ticket, the Democratic Party as a national political institution. We won't, we'll never have this shot again. We won't have it again in this lifetime. So we got to do it now. Part of what distinguished Trump so much in 2016 is he took what was ossified conservative dogma and said, no, what actually matters is these issues that no one's paid attention to, trade, immigration, foreign policy, realism, and, and so on. Um, but hey, we're seven years on from 2015 now. Um, and I think a lot of the themes in the America First agenda still are 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 the same because no one actually solved the problem. But but where do you think that maybe things have changed? Are there things that weren't as much of a problem in 2015 that are now much bigger problems? Well, I think financial, I think we're in the best financially. We can't, we're living on borrowed time. Not just that we have a, like I said, when the pandemic, when we shifted this from impeachment to pandemic, in the very first couple of days, I said, look, you, you have a global pandemic that's going to trigger a economic crisis, mm-hmm. aggregate demand on one level and the supply chains the other. It'll try a financial, a economic crisis that will trigger a financial crisis that lead to a capital markets crisis that will lead to a geopolitical crisis. Mm-hmm. And once you have that, you're really in a fourth turning. Okay. That's where we are today. And it's only gotten... That part of it's only gotten worse. Remember, right now we're at over thirty trillion dollars in debt, and we're, we're the whole city is run by this bizarre concept by a French uh, philosopher economist called modern monetary theory, where deficits don't matter. Right? They just think deficits don't matter. I, I can't tell you how big a deal it was for the Senate to pass that the other night, as they did, just with the and didn't even read the bill. Even John Cornyn said, "This is no way to run a railroad." No, we never went through the entire bill, just got dumped. And those appropriations bill are so complex. And people are just finding out now about the earmarks, but that's the small stuff. I mean, the major things that are in there. This town uh, believes that us being the prime reserve currency, what I mean by that for your audience is that we have one export in this country that the whole world has to take, and that's the dollar. Every transaction in the world is still has to be converted into dollars to be uh, to, to, to actually do a transaction. That makes us a uh, that that gives us superpowers. Also has big responsibility and liability. When Donald Trump uh, c- called the emergency order on March fifteenth of twenty twenty, there were five trillion dollars of U.S. M one basically in circulation. I think the the number today is twenty to twenty five trillion. Okay, that's what's happened. That is a rolling devaluation of this of working class people have lost ten percent of their money. Now just zero interest rates, so they're not getting any interest. You've had a ten percent devaluation of your own money. If you just kept it in a bank, you've lost ten percent. The people that can afford it least. So we are in and heading towards a financial crisis. And I know we get limited time. I just want to leave people with one thing. I've always looked at political figures when people come and pitch me, and you know, wanted to get the two things have always been important. Authenticity, authenticity, and fight. Trump had both of those, authenticity and fight. There's a third element, and this comes from Reagan in in the early 80s, and that's the ability to take political pain, Mm -hmm. okay, to withstand pain. Who out there, because 
all the easy decisions for us are decades in the past. We're, we still don't have the pain of those decisions because they're still up here printing money. Those days are about to come to end. When March, when we see in March that it's 9% basic core inflation, pre the, the, the Ukraine war and pre what's happening in Shenzhen right now where the whole 17 million people are in lockdown with the, the railhead. Yeah, that's from over the weekend. Oh, this is, I can't, this, this, Hong Kong's in lockdown 100%. Shenzhen, which is the railhead of the supply chain, particularly in tech, is that Silicon, that's China's Silicon Valley in total lockdown, 17 million people. And they, they don't really have their hand around the virus there. When that kicks in, Plus, what the capital markets are doing right now, uh, to what the capital markets are telling us and the inflation that's coming. Japan today announced that the wheat in Japan is going to be 17%, 17% higher in the island of Japan. We have a literally a prairie fire of a, a, an economy, not not good on fire. I mean, burning with the, this all the inflation and the financial problems we have, and we are throwing napalm on it. And so that is all, those decisions all have to, and the Fed's too gutless right now. Reagan had Volcker. The only way we were able to wring this thing out is that you had a rock like Ronald Reagan that took three years of horrible pain. Remember, in August of 1983, Reagan's approval rating, I think, was 35 percent because it had just been relentless being beaten every day because, you know, unemployment was high. Interest rates were high. Why? They were trying to wring that inflation out of the economy. Volcker was a rock. We don't have that in the city now. You have Roberts on the Supreme Court that's worried about how he's portrayed in, in the cocktail parties in Georgetown, how the Roberts court's portrayed, right? The pal at the Fed is a complete joke. My point is they're not independent institutions anymore. They all look where the wind's blowing and they all want to be like. They, they don't want to take pain. You need authenticity. You need fight that they're going to fight for you and you need the ability to take pain right now. And that's where I think is going to be the dividing line on people that really become, that are become leaders on the elective office part of this. And people have to know they're going to make tough decisions. We have so many hard decisions in front of us. And right now, even with inflation, the Fed has not increased interest rates yet. They've talked about it. Maybe this week they will, 25 basis points. They haven't stopped quantitative easing. We're still, remember, when I say $30 trillion on the balance sheet of the nation, we have $9 trillion on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, which is just juicing the system to keep asset prices up. So the wealthy are contend stay wealthier and wealthier. They're this class divide. So, no, the decisions we have to make in this nation are are extremely difficult, and we are we are entering an inferno. On top of that, a geopolitical situation, which I tell everybody, you if you study history, you study war. The one thing I can tell you is a constant: the law of unintended consequences. What happens is not what you anticipate happens. Okay, things can spin out of control, and particularly now you're talking about biological weapons chemical weapons, cyber weapons of such enormous scale and lethality, we have no earthy idea. We're in nuclear weapons, as bad as they are, not even as bad as the biological weapons. And look, we just had a biological weapon that changed world history come out of Wuhan, come out of the PLA's Wuhan lab a couple of years ago. So that now has Shenzhen, 17 million people in a hard lockdown. We are in dangerous, treacherous times and we need, we need leadership who not just can lead, but can take the pain of their decisions. How do you separate signal from noise in politics? It seems like every day the news cycle is an exercise in distracting us from what really matters. How do you do that? I think you've got to focus on what actually is, whether it's the, what of the economy, what of capital markets is telling you, what of geopolitics, what, and this directly ties, what they're fighting for, what they're fighting for, Miranda Devine had a great article today about Poland and Hungary not wanting to support European values. The, the, the LGBT uh, agenda plus open borders. And they've been cut off by they've been cut off by the uh, 
by the EU in many things, right? Some of their money, because they say, if you don't support European values, we're not going to do it. The same fight that the Moms for Liberty are having in the state of Florida is that fight right there. It's, the question is, what are we in Ukraine about again? Why is Ukraine, why they want to as part of the EU? Why, why, what's all this about? Why is this such a big deal for people in the Rio Grande Valley? I tell you, it's not a big deal for people in the Rio Grande Valley. The reason we're going to get over 50% of the Hispanics is exactly the cultural issues tied to the economic issues. So I think signal is don't get distracted by just the news and things that are coming up. And I don't want to name news stories, but their things are just ephemeral. They come and everybody- uh, Some of them were addressed at a- you know, TV show that, you know, said something about Joe Biden, you know, that's sort of thing. It's, yes, you <laughs> see it all the time or, you know, it's even it's, it's, it's but what is what is look when I shifted the show over to when I did impeachment first, somebody said, well, he's not getting impeached. I went on John Fredericks and the audience. I started talking. I said, Nancy Pelosi had this thing up at the U.N. She made this thing. He'll be impeached by Christmas. In the audience, I was the highlight of the John Frederick show every week. The audience went nuts, Steve. What Steve he did. And I could tell John, I said, are you kidding me? This thing's done by Christmas or shortly thereafter. And that's what over the weekend we decided to start the show. We started it and it started getting momentum. And then I came in one day in mid-January. I said, we're taking the second hour. We're going to turn it to war room pandemic. And Jason Miller goes, we're going to do what? <laughs> I go, he goes, we're on fire. You're not going to do that. And I go, yeah, we are going to do that. And. And and now, it, we're, I think we've had the most reason where the where the the film I made at the Reagan Ranch was called Still Point in a Turning World about President Reagan's great uh, the little ranch he had how that was a still point for him and and so many great things he did there but he was a rock in the middle mm -hmm. that's kind of what the war has become has come a still point in a turning world we we were able to lay out in a very sophisticated manner the toughest uh, the toughest. Uh, uh, things out there, events out there, processes out there, and let people get mental maps. So then all this stuff that hits them all day long, they have a way to actually process it, right? And I think that's why the audience has responded to it. And we continue, I, I, I'd like to think we're the most sophisticated show out there of all the topics we cover, but that's why we try to give them signal every day. And I think if people go back and look at the last couple of years and say, hey, these guys, cover, look, on, on the afternoon of the 20th, when I was sanctioned, they told me the oligarchs, I was sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party, Pompeo, Poninger, Navarre, myself. And I think I'm the first civilian in history to be sanctioned by the Chinese government. Four minutes into a, a, to Biden's thing, and the State Department didn't say anything. Fare thee well. We get sanctioned, right? So by, by CCP, I told the audience that day, if we do our job, right, people will realize this guy's illegitimate, and that will be the substrate of the collapse. And my objective is to kill his illegitimate presidency in the crib. I don't make any bones about that. That's my, I get up every day of how I not just stop, but destroy this administration playing within the lines and coloring within the lines. And I make no bones about it. I think we've done a pretty good job so far. Yeah. Right. And, but that's our, that's our, that's the work that we're called to. Right. Steve, we asked um, our audience before we, we taped this today, um, a bunch of, you know, we asked them, what, what do you guys want to hear about? And we've touched on basically everything. The one question that that we haven't yet is, um, what's with the three shirts? <laughs> well, you know, the uh, I have always, um, from prep school on, uh, back in those days, I always wore two shirts, uh -huh. right? It was where the, not all the time, but a lot, where the, where the Azad underneath the, uh, the button down. And um, I realized when I was in the Persian Gulf in, um, in the, in the Navy, in the, in the North Arabian sea, you layer over there for heat. Yeah. Right? It helps. <laughs> so I added the third shirt. Very so it just, it just started to, just started to be something I did and added the third shirt. It was going to all black. 
That was the big move. That was that was in the White House when I did the CPAC. When I came out with rights, I said, I'll give it to them all black. So I've been wearing that for a while. But yeah. up until then, I was, I'd wear other colors. I'm kind of all black now. I don't want to say it's about the weight. <laughs> Far be it for me to say I look more, I look more svelte mm -hmm. in black. But I was talking to Raheem a few months ago and I was like, you know, Steve should, uh, you know, we, we want you to be around for a very long time. And so you should do uh, every morning at like 6 a.m. Uh, people can all walk around with you and ask questions around the Capitol. You could walk around, do the I'll entire do circuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would love to record it. I, it could I, be a walking I, morning I, show. I actually, <laughs> actually, actually walk every morning around the Capitol. It's beautiful. Although we're, we're moving the war room to different locations too, just uh, so we can get some, some, some broader scale. And I think we're going to take the show on the road. We're trying to, particularly for the, I think if we do our job that we can win up 100, we pick up 100 seats in the house. Wow. If we do our job. I think there's 30 that's out there that you can grab onto, but I think there's D plus. And the other day, uh, DNC announced, I think it was a D plus 16. I forget what it was, but I noticed they're putting money into a D plus 16. That's a big <laughs> tell. So I think we have a historic opportunity. I think we're going to take the war room on the road this year and up until November, until we take control of the city again, probably spend more time on the road than, than here. But I like the six o'clock. Yeah. I do it anyway, so... Yeah. How can we, people follow everything that you're doing? I think just go to the war room and, and get on Getter. I actually have an account on Getter. I think it's at Steve Bannon. Mm -hmm. Cortez took at Steve. So Matt Steve, <laughs> Bannon, Matt Steve but just go to Getter. War room's on there. Just go to warm.org. The show's up all the, you know, four hours a day. Now we added a, we added a third hour called war room battleground that just focuses on all the battlegrounds uh, we're fighting on between now and November 8th. We may keep it after that, but for right now, we do three hours of pandemic, and then we do we got an hour just special. Like today, we're going to do from the Star News Service. They they have a battle a map of thirty districts that they're very focused on that Democrats control or open seats. So we're going to go through that. Emerald Robinson is going to give us her. She's got twenty five items, action items on on election integrity. So we'll do that. So it's very specific to hardcore politics, particularly in these battleground states in these battleground districts. We focus a lot on. The Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, we think that's a proxy for the Hispanic vote in this country. And so that's, so that hour is that. The rest is war and pandemic. That's excellent. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'd look, I love you. Your work and your audience should know and your donors should know your work is you guys are among the best. And if we're going to turn this thing around for the next administration, when Trump wins back in uh, in 24, we have to. You guys have had to train up at least a thousand people ready to come in because remember it's four thousand. The reason we couldn't do it last time, we just didn't have, we just didn't have the personnel, and it took so long to get everybody in. We have to be able to the day we win, we have to be ready to start to what they call beachhead teams. We have to get the beachhead teams of people that you've trained up over the next couple of years to be policy experts in their field of expertise and ready to commit a couple of years to go do it. And we have to get the thousand ready who are, um, and, and we have to build a bench up, not just the cabinet level, but those assistant secretaries where the action really happens. So, and then the agencies. So we have a lot of work uh, to do for us, plus staffing the Hill and all these other places. We have- a, Yeah, those hundred members aren't going to staff themselves. No, that's my <laughs> point. You got to staff it. You got to, you've, you've got to, uh, you've got to also the other agencies around town. So you guys got your work cut out for us. So anything I can do for you guys, you, you guys are rock stars. What you think? It's pretty crazy, right? I mean, Steve is a wealth of knowledge, and the fact that he said such kind things on his way out is um, the kind of publicity you can't really buy. <laughs> um, so, uh, thank you, and uh, and thank you for taking you know 
the time out of your day to listen to us, but thank him for, for taking the time out of his day. He tapes in the morning, he tapes at night. Um, uh, he gave us 15 minutes more than he probably should have because he had to run and go tape his evening show. I mean, it's just incredible to be able to sit across from someone like that. Uh, someone who the regime does not like, uh, very much and, uh, and tape. So, um, Nick, what'd you, what'd you make of it? I mean, we should go beyond just thanking him for coming on, as you said in the beginning, our rinky-dink show. Uh, We should thank him for being the American patriot that he is. Uh, (laughs) Constantly, you know, uh, fighting for the American people, for the working class, um, for for all of us uh, young serfs. we very much look forward to seeing what what Steve does over the next couple of years as we as we fight for our country. And uh, I will always cherish this sweet memory of that one time we had him on our show. <laughs> That's right. Um, thank you guys, as always, for listening. Be sure to rate and review the podcast. You can go to AmericanMoment.org to find everything we have cooking, including Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security, our conference on the future of conservative foreign policy with the American Conservative Magazine. You can find the Fellowship for American Statecraft, which is our flagship uh program for young people to get their start in American politics, where we pay them $3,000 a month to go to a Hill office or a nonprofit organization here in DC. You can donate to us at AmericanMoment.org slash donate and uh, sign up for the mailing list. That way you'll always be kept up to date with everything we have cooking. And thank you guys for listening. We're 50 episodes in. We've had north of 60 hours of content um, that we've put out for you. And the only reason we're able to justify it um, is because a lot of you are listening and a lot of you who have quite a bit of influence in politics. So thank you. And we will see you guys next week. Russia has invaded Ukraine. The world is in chaos. And Washington's decades-long, failed, bipartisan foreign policy consensus is to blame. Since the end of the Cold War, American elites squandered our peace dividend and chose instead to pursue endless and aimless engagement abroad. Their failures led to costly misadventures in the Middle East, dire miscalculations in Europe, and irresponsible naivete in East Asia. We must abandon this failed approach, generate new ideas, and identify new leaders. Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security is a partnership between the American Conservative and American Moment to chart a path forward for conservative foreign policy in the 21st century. During this emergency conference, our organizations will partner with dozens of prominent elected officials, scholars, and business leaders to set an agenda for a responsible American foreign policy that keeps our nation and its interests secure in a rapidly changing world. Join us on March 31st as we move up, up from chaos. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.